2: Janet Kelly with the Internet Law Center here in Silicon Beach in Santa Monica, California. Great to have you. And um, please be seated for in session. And we have an um, interesting show for you today. Um, today is actually the 98th birthday of the FTC, and um, we know that we've tied them on our show, and they played a very important role in the legal structure here in terms of the internet. So happy birthday to everyone over there. Um, so today we're going to talk about two things. We're going to talk about the. – we're going back to the gig city. And um, in the United States, when you talk about tech cities, you think of San Jose, um, Boston, Los Angeles, and some others. But right now, the fastest city in the U.S. in the Internet speed is Chattanooga. And we're going to talk about how they did that. Um, we have David Strom, um, who's a, a writer and um, – who was going to be joining us and talk about his um, story on Chattanooga? And the second half hour, we're going to talk about voter ID laws. And it's uh, there've been a number of states that have changed their voter requirements to uh, impose certain uh, ID standards in order to be um, to have a valid vote. And um, there's an organization um, called Vote riders that is trying to help people. Um, they're on the web. They're trying to help people navigate how to vote and to make sure they have the proper IDs. And we have Kathleen Unger, um, the founder of VoteRiders, who's going to join us in the second half hour. So without further ado, um, I want to welcome David Strom. Um, David, are you with us? Hello, Bennett. Nice to be here. Thank you. Now, David, you've been a, a tech journalist now for a number of years. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your career?
3: So I started out in uh, toiling in the fields of IT back in the mid-'80s when PCs were first coming into companies. And back then, life was simple. We had DOS on uh, PCs and DOS on the mainframes, and that was pretty much it. Uh, then I went on to start a bunch of publications. I helped start a, a demographic for PC Week. It's now E-Week. Started Network Computing Magazine back in 1990. And now I write for a bunch of different pubs, ReadWriteWeb, Web, Network World, GigaOM Pro, Slashdot, Dr. Dobbs. Uh, I run the DICE uh, security community, and I also uh, do some work for Redmond Channel Partners. So I'm all over the place, uh, just freelance writing.
2: Well, you wrote a very interesting piece on Chattanooga, the gig city. And I'm, I'm curious, what led you to want to do that?
3: Well, I heard about it and wanted to see it firsthand. And then when they were having the the gig tank and demo day where they had the startups uh, pitch their, their businesses, uh, and it was an opportunity to go down there and meet some of the folks from the Chamber of Commerce, from the uh, electric utility that's behind the whole infrastructure, and get to talk to some of the, the businesses that, are, that have moved to Chattanooga.
2: So it was, it was too good an opportunity not to pass out. And when you told people where you were going, what was the reaction? Huh? <laughs> where? Huh? <laughs> Chattanooga?
3: Chattanooga has what? Internet there? You know, isn't it in the you know, hills of Tennessee? uh so yeah, most people had never really heard of it, heard of it in terms of uh tech area uh and so that was a great story then because you really you really could explain what it what it does you know the fact that Google is putting their fiber into Kansas City and they're getting a lot of press there but they're just getting started Chattanooga' has been doing this now for three
2: years and um so Chattanooga is called the gig city because they have a uh, one gigabyte um, per second uh, download speed, right? Download and upload. It's completely symmetrical, and in
3: fact, that's really important because a lot of people have promised high-speed internet and they throttle it in one direction or another. And the the uh, the folks at the electric utility there, EPV, uh, said, "Well, no, we're going to do it symmetrical. We're going to have uh, lots of fiber to every." Business in every home within the city limits. So it's a 600 square mile area, and they've wired everybody
2: up. You know, I found the story about how they they came about doing this. Um, the um, utility is it, it's a municip- publicly owned utility. It's a municipal utility, right? Right. And they were going to try to move to a smart grid, um, partly because of to deal with issues they have on um, the deal with issues that they have concerning um, outages during hur- um, tornadoes?
3: Tornadoes and uh, very intense uh, electrical storms. You know, it's, it's not an area of the country that gets a lot of press like South Florida, for example, with their hurricanes or the Gulf Coast. But uh, they do have a lot of outages. And in fact, uh, the smart grid has has done what it uh, was intended. They've cut their outages by more than forty percent, uh, and they've also saved a lot of money in terms of replacement power purchases and repairs. And uh, customer service has gone up considerably. So it's not just that everybody can download the latest uh, American Idol episodes, but it's uh, you know, there's a real there's a real benefit, a business benefit there to their their own business. I mean, if you think about it, you know, the electric grid was put in place many, many years ago, and a lot of them were just manual power switches. So they've got to, they've got to figure out what, what the demand of power changes by minute by minute. They've got to figure out that demand and anticipate it and then make sure that they throw the switches in the right, right, right way. So having a smart grid really uh, makes that a lot easier. So um,
2: I guess, the, and they made an important decision. They said, "Okay, if we're going to build it, we're going to build it once. So why not? Anytime we, we 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 lay foundation for this, we also make sure that we doing putting the cable down to do this um, high speed fiber optic network. And that seems to be a very good, wise decision. And uh, did you talk to them all well about that?
3: Yeah, I mean, they had to really they had to really make it ubiquitous. Because they, you know, they deliver power everywhere. So it's not like they can put it in one part of the city and not in another. Uh, in order for a smart grid to be functional, it has to be a complete grid. So by the, you know, they they, they, really, they were smart about how they did this. And even Google is not putting it in everywhere in KC initially. they their cherry pickings are in areas that they think are more likely to get internet users and things like that. Um, so uh, that I think is a very important point is that it has to be ubiquitous it has to go to every single place in the city so that people can can take
2: advantage of it no matter where they live and no matter where their offices are now the, the Google um, situation you know, Google just recently picked Kansas City as a place to uh, where they're going to launch Google Fiber and uh, I believe it, based on you know, who and they were going to launch it in areas where people signed up above a certain threshold. But I believe they did get 90% or so of the Kansas City areas. But yeah, that leaves 10% that that has been probably part of the digital divide before and now is more so with such a move.
3: Right, right. And I think that's very important. And I think if you, if you don't have that ubiquity, you really shortchange a lot of, of folks and it's also, for entrepreneurship, it's, it's, a, it's great. It's absolute uh, God savings uh, because it's, um, uh, you, you know, you, you don't know, necessarily know where an entrepreneur is going to establish their office or live, right? I mean, it's, it, it, people could pop up anywhere.
2: And, and that's, the, that's the wonder of the technology now today is people are living where they want to live, not where they have to live. Right, and in fact, it's a funny story uh, talking about Google. So
3: the the Chattanooga uh, City IT folks contracted with some Google engineers who happened to be in Atlanta. You know, Google has people all over the place uh, oh. to, to do to develop some projects for them. And so they came up and they were working with the Chattanooga folks, and they said, hey, you know, this gig stuff is actually pretty cool. We We get better connectivity up here in Chattanooga than we do in Atlanta. A couple of the guys, since they took the project on, actually –
2: Moved to Chattanooga. <laughs> interesting. I mean that that's that that's the story right there, more or less. Right, right. And They're attracting people that are
3: you know internet savvy who want to take advantage of that connectivity, and they can
2: live anywhere. And that, that's what you know. What's interesting to see, you know, I mean, we we had um, Ed Marston from the Chamber of Commerce on um, last May. And he he kind of gave us an an overview of what was going on in Chattanooga. But it seems like a lot has happened since May. And I think you attended, they had a big um, festival where um, they had people presenting proposals to get funding from, um, I guess there's a a gig kind of investment bank there. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Right.
3: Well, a lot of cities, including St. Louis, where I live, are doing this now, where the local uh, VCs and various funding entities are getting together and they're promising uh, outright grants. In some cases, in some cases, they're taking equity positions for it's typically like 20, 30, 40,000, $50,000. Um, and so they had this contest there and people had to give pitches to uh, a group of judges. And, you know, they had to promise to to move their office. If they weren't already living in Chattanooga, they had to move their offices and principal place of business and have at least one person uh, living in, and working in Chattanooga for the next year. And se- and several people were pitching. There was a, a bunch of guys from Ireland. They had very thick Irish accents. It was very hard to understand them. Uh, I can't remember exactly uh, where all the other ones were, but they were from around, around the world. They were not exactly uh, around the corner. Uh, uh, there was one from uh, Georgia. There was one from uh, Asheville, um, so you know they were they were all over the place, and it was very interesting. A lot of these were very young folks, very uh, you know very passionate about what they were trying to do and how they were going to use technology, in in particular, uh, thing. Uh, um, you know they've they've gotten, uh, I think eight teams got fifteen thousand dollars apiece as as a result of this process.
2: Now the um, the winning. The what was it, was it called? Geek Fest or what was the? It was called the Gig Tank. Gig Tank, okay. You know, like
3: Shark Tank on TV. This is the Gig Tank.
2: So. Gig Tank, and, um, and I guess everything's there is gig now. There must be like gig right. burgers and gig fries and. <laughs> <laughs> um, now there was uh, I guess one of the things that I think Chattanooga is um, allowing us to grasp or maybe expand our mind is. What does one do with a gig? I mean, it sounds great, but what is, what is it that you can do? And I guess, part well, let, me, of
3: the- let, me, let me give you an example. So, sure. uh, we talked to a doctor there who ran a, uh, a medium sized practice. He had a bunch of, of medical offices that were scattered around the metropolitan region, and he had diagnostic equipment in some of them, and he had doctors in some of them. And so, people would walk in to their clinics or those offices to see their doctor, and then they'd have to schedule to get an X-ray or whatever at another office. And then they, you know, once that X-ray was taken, then they'd have to ship the film or they'd have to ship the image to the to the doctor who was actually going to do the diagnosis. Well, those weren't, even though it's, they were all in Chattanooga, they weren't necessarily all nearby each other. They weren't around the corner, and sometimes doctors weren't available who you know, because of emergencies or whatever. So they they had a a scheduling problem, a routing problem. They had a a utilization problem with all of their various talent. Well, having a gig, you know, you can imagine uh, an x-ray or a typical medical scan is a lot of bites. It's, It's like a movie. It takes a long time to download if you've got a very slow connection. Well, having that gig means it comes in in a matter of seconds. So it doesn't really matter where the doctor is. He could be working at home. He could be in the hospital. He could be, you know, doing something else at a different office. And you know, he gets an email notification that the scan is complete. He can bring it up and within a few a few minutes read the scan and and diagnose it and send off his, um, his you know what he's gonna you know what he's gonna recommend for the patient. It really makes their business a lot more flexible. Even though it's just a chat, do the business with just chat, do the people.
2: I mean, so, and that's just a doctor's
3: office. That's just a doctor's office.
2: Yeah. I mean, which you know it granted there's some technology involved, but relatively on the scale of things it's a, it's a low tech enterprise right and um imagine what it means for a more you know complex enterprise and i, I think that what was you wrote about um or I, one of the articles I read was about the um the 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 people that won the contest at at gig tank and there was something about uh and it was actually cheaper at that time um if a, a California researcher uh was generating a terabyte of data, it was actually cheaper to fly to London and deliver it to, you know, their compatriot in L- there um rather than transfer it over the internet.
3: Yeah, I I I believe it. I mean, you know, you put a, you put a terabyte hard drive in a FedEx envelope, that's a pretty good connectivity. You know, granted it's not going to get there for the next day. Right. Um, But the city itself has a lot of applications. Uh, I want to spend some time to talk about that because I think that's very interesting. They they wanted to leverage this network for their own operations. And, for example, um, there was a city park that was downtown where um, they wanted to make sure that in the interest of public safety that people perceived that the park was safe, including at night. And so they had lighting uh, put into place in the park, but they didn't want to blast the lighting in it when it wasn't needed. Uh, and they had a series of flash mobs that started to congregate there, just people sort of texting each other saying, let's go meet down at the park. And all of a sudden you'd have this crowd of people. Well, the city can monitor the park usage because they've got video cameras and other kinds of sensors, and they replaced their uh, lights with uh, LED lights that can be, turned up in a second, and so when they saw the flash mobs congregating, they just zapped them with light, and all of a sudden, those people dispersed, so they didn't have to go in there with a lot of riot gear or, you know, heavy-handed policing, <laughs> you know, they just turned up the lights, basically, and everybody left. Um, you know, they also could scan license plates on the cars in the parking lot uh, and and see, uh, you know, who was, who was there, and they caught several people that had outstanding tickets or warrants or things like that. Um, so they know now, you, you know, if you have a stolen car, you don't park it in the downtown uh, park parking lot.
2: And I think, you know, yes, and I, I read about uh, how they're able to, you know, coordinate now traffic lights and things like that. And, and just in looking around at some of the literature on the gig, it's interesting to see how other cities are watching Chattanooga to see what services they can provide. And uh, so it's definitely um, I, an area that everyone's uh, looking at, both from you know, a business, a technology, and a government center. And uh, we're going to talk about that in a little bit. Um, we're, first, we have to take a short break. But um, when we come back, you'll be listening to Cyber Law and Business Report. And mm-hmm. we have David Strauman. We're talking about the Gig City. We'll be back after these messages.
1: Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Rise Links send web indexes. Take a bow to the largest link map in the world. Majestic SEO. to Use your time and let Majestic wield its mighty sword. MajesticSEO.com. It's good to be king. Building better search engine rankings takes the right formula. Tracking those rankings is super simple. All you need is AuthorityLabs.com.
0: WebmasterRadio.fm has compressed thousands of
2: podcasts
0: and all of our radio shows into the ultimate internet marketer's knowledge base. Introducing the new WebmasterRadio.fm mobile app, absolutely free and now available for iPhone and Android users. Listen to our live broadcasts at the push of a button or access our complete archive of shows past and present like SEO 101, Affiliate Buzz, The Shoe Money Show, The Daily Search Cast, and so much more. Read through our blog for continuous industry news and programming updates and socialize with us through all of our social media channels including Twitter, Facebook, Google+, and YouTube. Download the new Webmaster webmasterradio.fm mobile app A must-have for every Internet marketer on Earth. Download it now from the iTunes Store or the Google Play Store. WebmasterRadio.fm. Get addicted. Get ahead.
1: The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on WebmasterRadio.fm.
2: And we're back, um, this is the Cyber Law Business Report. And you're, um, you're talking about the gig city here with, um, Dave Strom. And, um, David, um, when I had, uh, um, Ed Marston on and we were talking about the, the gig city last May, I, I asked him just a, you know, a very, not, not very articulate, but an important question. You know, so what? And what, what has been the economic impact so far for the city?
3: Well, it's interesting because it, it's still being formed. I think there's definitely been an economic impact. There's definitely been a lot more telecommuting happening, a lot uh, better uh, traffic management. Uh, there's, they've been able to attract employment to Chattanooga. Uh, the city used to have a hard time uh, filling IT positions. Uh, for their own internal IT network. They, the last 10 people have been filled from out-of-towners who have come, to, come there because they heard about the gig city and wanted to live there. You know, Chattanooga was uh, the first place that Coca-Cola was bottled in the early 1900s, and it was because it was a transportation center. It had all that river magic that was going on there in that corner of Tennessee. Well, they're trying to do the same thing now with gig ethernet and deliver Internet traffic to all sorts of other places, so I think it's still it's still being
2: measured, but there's definitely a positive upswing,
3: um, and there's definitely
2: an economic impact. Positive. I impact. saw something to the effect that they've had about like one and a half billion dollars, which comes to about um, a couple thousand dollars per resident, which yeah wouldn't know, in a very you. short period of time is significant. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me at all. I,
3: I think the. Uh, you know, they're doing all the right things, and, and soon, a few years from now, we're not going to be talking about Chattanooga or Kansas City. We're going to talk about how
2: every city is going to do something like this. It's really just part of the basic infrastructure that you have to provide. Well, that's interesting because this comes at a time um, we've had a, a movement to go the opposite way. Uh, there were a number of states that actually passed legislation banning cities from having you know the equivalent of what, um, Chattanooga has. It's just their own, you know, public Wi-Fi. And
3: well, it's not, it's not public Wi-Fi, okay, so, there, so it's, it's... It's a public it's not, utility. It's a public utility, so the utility still is responsible to the taxpayers of Chattanooga to make sure that they are spending money wisely. Um, and, you know, this was not done to attract uh, IT-related entrepreneurs or civic progress or to encourage telecommuting, or improve city services. Although all those things have actually happened. It was done because we had outages on the electric grid that we had to fix. It was a very practical, real-world problem. I think if you compare this with Philadelphia, that was trying to put public Wi-Fi in place, or here in St. Louis, we, we had this project that was going great guns to put uh, Wi-Fi on all the electric uh, street light posts until we realized that most of the day they're turned off and no power goes to those lights. <laughs> so it was like, Oh, we had like one of these, oh, you know, Oh crap moments. Uh, and it never went anywhere because we can't really turn the lights on during the day. That's not a practical.
2: And, and that's, that's when you have a press release where the, the subject line is dope. <laughs> <laughs> right,
3: right. You know, AT&T was involved in that project. I mean, you think, if
2: anybody should figure that out, it would be somebody like AT and T. Yeah, I mean Bell Labs, and you know, they probably wired the poll to begin with. Um, <laughs> amazing, but it, um, it's there's also a, a debate over, you know, to what extent should um, the free market uh, determine um, whether you know, the broad- broadband expands, or so, you know, what is the role of government? in this has been kind of a debate, and you know, a lot of people pointing to the fact that Google. You know, entering Kansas City on their own, but it, you know, they also did get huge subsidies and yeah, you know, pullbacks from the city to get there.
3: Well, nobody and- debates whether, you know, we just re- repro- uh, uh, replaced and improved one of the oldest interstate highways uh, through St. Louis. And I forget how many tens of millions of dollars were spent on about 10 miles worth of road. I think it was like 2 million bucks a mile, something like that. Um, And nobody debated whether we should do that or not. You know, the freeway was falling apart. You know, the roadbed was literally dissolved after 50 years of of travel. Uh, You know, should private enterprise, you know, I'm going to pay for one mile of that freeway and not let anybody else go on that one mile? No, I mean, it's ridiculous. It's a public entity. It's part of the public infrastructure that uh, affects the quality of life and the business and the lifeblood of the city. And I think we have to start thinking about gig E as, as, as part of that. Uh, you know, the, I, I think the key message from Chattanooga is you don't just build out a fiber network just for internet connections. There's got to be a business justification. You've got to have symmetrical service, both up and downloads, both a gigabit. You've got to look at both the small and the large employers because there's benefits to both and you want the small employers to stay in the city and grow and attract new small entrepreneurs, right. and you also want the big guys to keep their people, too. Uh, you know, the other thing that was very cool about Chattanooga was that they, create, uh, they helped create all this with a university-based partner. So there's a university, uh, one of the University of Tennessee outlets that's there, has a commercialization uh, entity that takes technologies and intellectual property from the university and tries to commercialize them and make money. And of course, they're just tickle pink that they have this gigabit of Ethernet now to, to do these kinds of things. Off.
2: Right. So you know, all those things strike me. Yeah, uh, go, sorry. The one thing that struck me: if you look at where a lot of the tech centers have emerged, they've emerged by in the areas of very strong university structures. And you know, I don't maybe I don't know a whole lot about the University of Tennessee, but it didn't seem that Chattanooga had that infrastructure. In fact, I looked at Chattanooga, you know, demographically compared to two other cities, even Kansas City, and there was nothing that really jumped out. Um, so it's just your average
3: uh, Mid America, you know, mid-sized city. You know, it, yes, it has a couple of universities, but it's not overly academic. Yes, it has some smokestack industries, but not overly so. Yes, it has some smart people that are living there, but not a lot. You know, I mean, just it, it sort of was in the middle of the road in a lot of areas.
2: Um we only got a few minutes left. Uh why don't you tell me a little bit more about if people want to find more about you and your article and um what's the best way to find you?
3: Uh all my articles are on strominator.com dot com. It's a blog that I keep that has links to all the pieces that I've written over the last several years. If you can go to go to some of the other places that I mentioned, Read Write Web is where the article appeared that you first wrote about okay. it.
2: Yeah. And uh, it was funny you say Shrominator because today is actually Linda Hamilton's birthday. All right, yeah. From the Terminator. From the Terminator, yeah. And, uh... The key key is um, to many geek's hearts. (laughs) And, uh... But, okay, so um, this is the part where we we usually do some um, quick speed questions uh, just to kind of give flavor. And, um... And so, um... iPhone, Droid, or BlackBerry? Oh, I use an iPhone. And, uh... If you had to have three people who are alive to invite to dinner or drinks, who would they be?
3: Well, three of my favorite data scientists are Hillary Mason from Bitly, Jeff Jonas from IBM, who's an IBM fellow that never got a college degree, and uh, the Chicago crime developer Adrian Holovaty. So those are three that I think would be fun to have.
2: You can take them to dinner in Chattanooga. Okay, what's the next yeah. big
3: thing? What's the next big thing? Oh,
2: gee, I don't know. Uh, getting maps to work right. <laughs> 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 oh. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to say the cards repeat. Yeah, um, that would be nice. Yeah, and then Reagan or Clinton? Oh, Chelsea Clinton, of course. Oh, of course. And uh, so, I want to thank you for joining us. I think this is a, an interesting issue to watch, and uh, you know, I think what's happening in Chattanooga and Kansas City is really going, to, um, especially in light of the fact that we've fallen behind worldwide. I mean, they're, they're showing us a path of where we can go. And uh, I think he did a great job in, in highlighting you know what, kind of what's going on in that city. So definitely check out David's article. And uh, um, I want to thank you for joining us, and uh, hope you consider coming back. As are you going to go back to Chattanooga? Oh yeah, sure. It's not that far away from where I live. So, so well, definitely keep us posted. And um, thanks again for joining us. Yeah. And um, we're going to next switch to our second segment. We're going to talk about the voter ID laws that are going on um, throughout uh, the country. There's about 31 states now that have uh, a voter ID system. And um, they're, this is highly controversial because some suspect that they are really just voter suppression laws in disguise. But there's um, our next guest actually has worked and launched an organization to try to help um, citizens figure navigate and figure out what it is they need and how they can get it. Um and it's not always as simple as it sounds. If you if you live in rural Pennsylvania, for example, the DMV may not be far may not be nearby and you may not have access to transportation or and you know these are some of the issues that um, Vote Rider is trying to address. And um Kathleen Vote Rider, is that that name meant to evoke kind of the Freedom Riders?
4: Well uh Yes, it was. In, uh, Vote Riders was, uh, the name was inspired uh, in part by Freedom Riders, who, of course, were civil rights activists who rode interstate buses into the South in the early 60s to challenge local laws and customs that enforced segregation. Uh, their bravery brought national attention to the issue. What Vote Riders does, which Vote Riders being a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization, we use traditional and social media to attract uh, support and volunteers to on-the-ground organizations that are assisting citizens to get their voter IDs. And importantly, we spread the word to other communities with the hope of inspiring and galvanizing those who care about the fundamental right to vote to emulate these effective efforts.
2: Now, um, obviously, there's a lot of focus on voter issues and the right to vote after the, the 2000 election and the controversy surrounding what happened in Florida. And between 2000 and 2008, did many states pass any voter ID laws? Uh,
4: the uh, Just to kind of give you a little overview, we, we've uh, there are now 31 states uh, that have voter ID laws in effect uh, that require all voters to show ID at the polls uh, this November. Uh, since 2001, nearly 1,000 voter ID bills have been introduced in a total of 46 states, uh, uh, and uh, the, the key years to highlight before 2011 uh, uh, were in uh, 2005 when Indiana and Georgia were the only states with strict photo ID laws, and then 2008 when the U.S. Supreme Court upheld the Indiana law, even in the admitted absence of any evidence of the of the type of voter fraud these laws are alleged to prevent, but but also in the admitted absence of any evidence of 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 a uh, you know or, or, you know disenfranchisement, let alone racial dis, uh, racial discrimination in its Earth. impact. So this these some of these voter ID laws will likely go back up to the U.S. Supreme Court because. Uh, there now is plenty of evidence of, of groups being uh, disenfranchised, uh, including on a racial basis.
2: And that's, uh, that's some of what's been troubling about the laws. I, I asked about the time period because, it, you know, of the 31 laws, it seems almost you know, 20, 28 or so or more were, were done after um, we had a, a huge black turnout and elected the first black president. And so now all of a sudden there's a need for voter ID laws and and you have even statements more or less to the effect that that's the desired goal is to really have a a pre-2008 turnout, um, regardless of whether or not that's the will of the people.
4: Right. Well, uh, so, and it really accelerated uh, uh, last year in, in 2011 with, with uh, legislation introduced in thirty four states uh, and and uh... uh... so and this year legislation was introduced in thirty two states uh, including new voter id proposals in fourteen states uh... proposals to strengthen existing voter id laws in ten states and bills in nine states to amend to amend the new voter id laws passed in twenty eleven so and then you had Four new voter ID laws passed in in Minnesota, which has uh, you know something on the ballot to see if that's going to go. Uh, whether there'll be an it uh, an amendment to the constitution plus New Hampshire, Pennsylvania, and Virginia. So um, you're out, but as the acceleration post 2008 really picked up in 2011 after, of course, the 2010 election when. Uh, when there were, uh, you know, a lot of uh, Republican legislators uh, voted into office in a, in, a, in a number of states.
2: Now, there's been a lot of focus on Pennsylvania. Maybe that's a good state to talk about in in terms of what you guys were doing, um, and and using the internet and helping people understand what it is they need. Um, in terms of relatively to other states, how restrictive is Pennsylvania on voter IDs? In terms of as it, not as it was drafted, not how it's been changed since
4: then. Right. Well, uh, you, you, just you're you're so right. Of the 31 states, there are various levels of of challenges that citizens face, and 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 let's be clear: those people who are, uh, you know, at, at risk of being disenfranchised are primarily those who do not have a current driver's license in the states in which they live and vote. So, Pennsylvania. Um, uh the uh, their law passed this past march and uh it's one of the five strict uh voter id states strict meaning voters who fail to show uh a photo id uh you know one of the ones that are 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 required under the each state's law are will be given a provisional ballot and they'll have to show up after the election within x period of time uh, with their voter ID in order to get that provisional ballot counted. So, uh, Pennsylvania's law that was passed in March requires a copy of your birth certificate with a raised seal and, of course, legal documentation of any change of name since then, uh, all of which, of course, costs money and can take a lot of time. Plus, you need a social security card, plus two acceptable documents showing your name and address. Now, the enactment of the Pennsylvania law has undergone serial changes such as um, allowing electronic confirmation of your birth in Pennsylvania, but which then forced citizens to visit PennDOT, which is their version of the DMV, twice. Then where you need to give only your social security number rather than needing your card, then allowing you to get a voter ID with lesser requirements only if you prove you're unable to get the documents that the law requires and so many other changes until literally yesterday when the requirement uh, for two documents proving your residence uh, was eliminated. This, it's kind of been on a daily basis, all this uh, so uh, everyone just is to be clear, confused.
2: the elimination is, is administrative. You know, there's been no legislative change. It's just they're right. not re- demanding it.
4: Right. It's all coming out of the the Pennsylvania, exactly Department of State, and uh, so everyone, including importantly the the PennDOT personnel, are are, are confused now. And now uh, uh, Bennett, here's the big picture in Pennsylvania. What I call the insurmountable gap for those registered voters without IDs. When the legislation was under consideration, the government repeatedly advised that only 1% or over 80,000 voters would need to get their voter ID. A later analysis showed a discrepancy of 759,000 registered voters without state ID. And then a University of Washington professor at the trial trial challenging uh, the voter ID law uh, revealed a study where up to one and a half million voters would be disenfranchised. So to put this all into perspective, Pennsylvania announced on September 18 that only 9,478 voter IDs had been issued. 9,478 versus a million and a half or 759,000 or even 80,000 plus.
2: Well, I mean, let's address one of the common statements I hear from others, excuse me, is, and it was actually made by the sponsor recently. He was on a talk show and he was asked about um, Governor Romney's 47% remark. And um, um, the um, Representative Metcalf, the sponsor of the bill uh, in Pennsylvania, said that um, 47% of the people are living off the public dole living off their neighbors, hard work, and we have a lot of people out there that are too lazy to get up and get out there and get the ID they need. If individuals are too lazy, the state can't fix that. And so there's a perception that if people aren't getting IDs, it's because they're just lazy. And um, it, How real is that?
4: I would say the correct perception is if you're not a lawyer, forget about it. Okay? It's that complicated. All right? So... Uh, if you don't have uh, a copy of your birth certificate with a raised seal, it could be because uh, uh, the, where your, your birth certificate was located, whether it was your home or the hospital or the, the building of records, burned down. Okay? So how do you go about getting a copy of your birth certificate? How do you do that if you were born by a midwife or at home uh, or somewhere where there is no, not the state recognized form of, of birth certificate. It, it in South Carolina, for instance, uh, that takes paying a lawyer somewhere between seven hundred fifty dollars and two thousand dollars, and takes at least eight months, if not up to a year and a half, to get what's uh, to get uh, a replacement birth certificate. Now, uh, so there's and now what if you have. What if there's a mistake in your birth certificate? Uh, to correct that mistake in Wisconsin, that costs 200 dollars. That's on top of getting the, you know a copy of your birth certificate in the first place, which is 25 to 50 dollars. Then, um, what if you, were, you changed your name through adoption? You need a record of that. What if you've married, divorced, remarried? You need all of those decrees, okay, you know, uh, certificates of marriage and divorce, et cetera. Tra- I call it, um, you know, it's it's tracking your your name. That's just for openers. That's just for the birth certificate, the social security card. There are a number of states where it is an absolute catch twenty-two. Some of them, it seems as if to get a to get a replacement copy of your your social security card, you need to have. A photo ID. Well, you're going to get a copy of your social security card because you don't have a photo ID. Right. Uh, 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 you know, uh, documents showing where you live, a utility bill, etc. Sounds simple, doesn't it? Well, I'm sure we all know uh, lots of of people where there's at least a couple, if not, uh, uh, you know, children who are age 18 and over, all living in the same home or their other group living situations and those bills are in one person's name what are the other people supposed to do if they're supposed to show up with with all of these documents also these are people again who don't essentially they don't have cars because they don't have a current driver's license your your local DMV can be a hundred miles away and the days and hours it's open can be few or even rare. My favorite one is in Wisconsin, where there's a, a DMV that is open uh, every fifth Wednesday of the of the month, which means <laughs> that that branch is open four times a year. Okay,
2: a- so, except during the except during Green Bay season. When, yeah. uh, <laughs> okay. But you know, there's, there's an important thing that gets I, I, you often don't hear. There actually is. A provision in the Constitution, the 24th Amendment, that says the right of citizens of the United States to vote in any primary or other election for president or vice president, for electors for president or vice president, or for senator or representatives in Congress, shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or any state by reason of failure to pay any poll tax or other tax. And, you know, to, it sounds like paying a couple hundred dollars just to get your birth certificate to um, get an, get their ID to, so you can vote is a poll tax.
4: Well, what they hang their hat on, the, the states hang their hat on, is the fact that if you're very persistent about it, uh, they will ultimately uh, give you a, a voter ID where, where they don't charge you for it. What is what What belies that and is that to get the underlying documents to to for, for where you're at the point where you can get the voter ID, all of those cost money so you, you know it's it's it, you're you're absolutely right it is it is uh, certainly uh, functions as as a poll tax uh, to to get to the point of getting that voter ID and uh, you know unfortunately, as I said, you have to be very persistent oftentimes when you're at one of these uh, DMV uh, branches because, uh, the, the, you know, the personnel can be, uh, you know, likely confused by all the various laws, all the changes, et cetera, and they insist on charging the $13.50. Uh, Pennsylvania is now... Um, at the point where they're saying, okay, if you give us all the documentation, including the receipt showing you paid for it, we will reimburse you because you shouldn't have had to pay for ultimately the voter ID. That's the way they get around the poll tax.
2: And, and Yeah. Um, the problem, though, is that if before I even decide to go through that process, I may be discouraged from doing so because I don't have the money. So even if ultimately, you know, if I... If had, had I, not, not knowing this, but had I endeavored to do so and was able to talk my way out of paying the fee, I'm not going to know that unless I try. And a number of people might be discouraged just because of it.
4: Well, they're going to be discouraged not only by the financial aspect, but, you know, let, let's face it. Uh, I would say many, perhaps most of the people who, who don't have uh, a, a state ID, or, or a driver's license, but you can get it in all these states. They do have a state ID. They don't have that, or and they're not, not trying to get that because they don't have the wherewithal. They don't have the, they're not lawyers, and they don't have uh, the, the time, and they don't have the money. So, you know, they're people who are working, uh, you know, uh, two or three jobs. They have families. They're just pedal to the metal as it is. To take off a day, and it does take a day, at least, if not over time. There are lots of stories where people have put in, you know, ultimately three days' worth of time to, to ultimately get their voter ID. And, of course, they don't have a car, so they have to take a bus. Or they may have to take three buses each way. And so that's time and that's money and and a lot of these people do not have either of those.
2: So there was, there was an interesting um, piece in, in the in the press recently. Um, Elizabeth Drew, the, the you know kind of famous journalist, who yeah. also is a Nixon biographer. So um, not only was she contemporary during Nixon era, but she's currently working on biographies of him. Um, so you would think she would. She would know better than anyone um except maybe Bob Woodward um, you know she says that she believes that this, this current rash of voter suppression laws um let's call them up what they are is um actually more alarming than watergate um She said that um basically um in her view that this is the worst thing that has happened to our democratic election system since the late nineteenth century and that it's uh, more menacing than watergate so um... but uh, we only got a few minutes left um... Kathleen if people want to learn more about this well what's the best place for them to go
4: well uh... absolutely to vote riders v-o-t-e-r-i-d-e-r-s uh, dot com uh... uh... we have uh, uh, you know, lots of, of programs that we're, we're focusing on to, to assist these, uh, local organizations like, uh, the Philadelphia League of Women Voters with their Voter Advocates Program. These are, uh, trained volunteers who are accompanying citizens into dot to make sure that process goes smoothly. We're producing videos of compelling citizen stories so that the media and public will have a better understanding of, of of what's going on. Um, uh, We, uh, you know, this is uh, a time of of where people can uh, make uh, an an historical difference in our country, both now and, as you said, for years to come, Uh, whether reaching out to family members and friends if they live in a voter ID state to make sure they have their voter ID or supporting local organizations that are helping or, frankly, contributing to vote riders Will mean that those citizens who really want to vote will be able to vote, and um, and we really urge you to contact us at votewriters.com. Uh, we can, you know, answer questions, and uh, it's it's it, it it is absolutely Elizabeth Drew and and you Bennett are right. They this is a this is a matter that's going to go on way beyond uh, this November election. There are various laws that are uh, are coming. Uh, into play in 2013, in 2014, there are laws that are uh, currently essentially enjoined and are on appeal. So, it's uh, uh, this is this is something that we all need to pay attention to, uh, so that uh, you know American citizens can exercise well, their fundamental right to vote.
2: And we hope they will. Um, Kathleen, I want to thank you for joining us, and I'm sorry we we had to cut you short, but um, thank you again, and this is a very important issue, so please check it out. Um, I wanted to say a shout-out to all those participating in Social Media Week uh, all over the world. Um, I hope you're enjoying it. Um, We've been attending some of them, and we may be talking about this on our next show, Um, but our next show will feature um, the blogger who is the most um, watched and feared blogger in China, and he's located here in the United States. He's a Duke University grad, and we're going to have him next week, talking about how he is rocking <laughs> the other half of the world from his own little private domain in North Carolina. Um, so I want to thank you for joining us again for Cyber Law and Business Report. Um, court is adjourned. I hope you'll um, come come us next um, from We broadcast from the Internet Law Center in Santa Monica, and short sure our a webmaster radio Radio app so you can take us with you um, you can take me to lunch and you don't have to buy me anything so I want to thank you everyone again for joining us I want to thank our guests for such um, in their insights and um, look forward to talking to you next week this is Bennett Kelly with Internet Law Center quarters adjourned, see you next week